0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with David Parker, who is using Ruby on Rails and Sapper to build a platform that lets you subscribe to a person, just like you'd subscribe to a podcast. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. Very happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform?
1: Yeah. Um, my name is David Parker and I have a platform called ListenAddict. Uh, so listenaddict.com and you can go to the platform and if you wanted to say, just like you said, subscribe to a person. So let's say you're really into Arnold Schwarzenegger, for example, you could go to my platform and you can subscribe to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then if he is on any given podcast and does another talk, you will get notified about that. So you don't have to go find uh, that new podcast that you may have never heard of before.
0: Very cool, yeah, I love that idea because usually it's like, yeah, I'll find someone I wanna listen to and then it's like, I'm just furiously Googling like a maniac, but having that all in one spot sounds very nice.
1: Yeah, and the the main issue with it right now is there are so many podcasts I still don't know uh, about and I'm not importing every podcast in the world. So it's still a, a work in progress always.
0: Nice. So it sounds like we'll have some fun stuff to discuss around like keeping tabs on all these different podcast platforms. But before we get there, um, are you the sole developer on this project?
1: Yeah, it's just me.
0: Cool. So how long did it take you to go from just like an empty folder to shipping an MVP?
1: Uh, I started, so this was my COVID project last year. Um, I started it, I think my first commit, I should have written this down, I believe was the end of May. And I put it into production live the first week in November.
0: Okay, so like six months or so?
1: Just short of six months, yeah.
0: Okay, were you working on that full-time, or is this like nights and weekends type of thing?
1: So it was nights and weekends. I uh, have a full-time job and had a full-time job last year, and so that would take up most of my time. I also have a family, so balancing it out with family duties is the other part of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, before we jump into the tech components here, do you want to share like any type of traffic numbers that might make sense? Like, you know, how many... Uh, people you have on the platform, or number of podcasts, or whatever.
1: So I only at about a hundred podcasts imported. It roughly ends up. Um, actually, I didn't bring this up, so I'm going to look it up live. Apologize. Yeah. The uh, I have twenty four thousand six hundred talks imported, and twelve thousand seven hundred people um, within those talks. I try to make sure that what I'm importing is mostly interview based podcasts. So that's like I said, the issue is making sure I'm not just importing everything. Um, generically. It serves... Uh, I had 4,200 uniques in the last 30 days uh, with 770,000 total requests and 7 gigs of data served.
0: Wow, very nice. Yeah, that's a lot of data.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know why. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, it's it's good data, though, because that means uh, people are viewing stuff.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's always surprising to me when I, I see those traffic numbers.
0: Mm -hmm. So on the back end here, you know, you mentioned you are using Ruby on Rails. Do you want to give us uh, the rundown and what motivated you to use that?
1: Yeah, so I'll give you just kind of the the overall architecture first. Um, I'm using Ruby on Rails uh, API only for the back end. It's hosted on Heroku and using Postgres. And on the front end, I'm using, as you mentioned earlier, Sapper, which is a framework for Svelte. Um, So if you're familiar with React or Vue, it's it's something similar, but slightly different. Um, I can go into that details later too. What motivated me to use Ruby on Rails is I've used it for a a decade. (laughs) It's, It's so fast for me to get started and so easy to just use to make APIs. It was hard for me not to use that as my backend service. And I was already going to be learning silt from scratch. That was kind of the scratch and the itch for the COVID project, which is learning silt. So I didn't want to be learning a new backend simultaneously while learning a new front-end.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. And yeah, isn't it so nice when you just lean on, you know, 10 years of experience worth of code, like you can really get something up and running so quick.
1: Yes, for sure. I, I, in fact you know i have very deep knowledge of postgres as well so it was super quick for me to do that back end and really the hardest part for this platform for me was learning and writing some algorithms to extract people's names from podcast descriptions and titles so getting some algorithms written was probably the more complex part
0: hmm yeah we can definitely dive into that a little bit uh, but on the Rails side, uh, do you want to go over maybe some components of Rails that you're using in this application? Like, are you happen to using uh, like Action Cable or anything else?
1: No, because I don't have any kind of uh, front end need for that right now um, with websockets and whatnot. It's basically <laughs> a nice interface for me to dig into um, the Active Record. Excuse me. Basically, like I said. I'm, I generally write my queries first in general SQL, and then I convert that into active record. Um, and then that helps me kind of inform what I want on the front end. And I kind of bounce back and forth a lot between front end and back end to make sure I'm building the right APIs out. I've played with GraphQL um, in the past. I haven't used it professionally, but I generally build... My tooling to be kind of similar to that, so it's kind of a REST interface, but I have different serializers to extract out the exact data that I need, and I really try to optimize my queries for speed.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it's also interesting to hear that you know you mentioned you're really into Postgres as well, that you actually write your queries like raw SQL before you move them into Active Record, because DHH put all that work into Active Record, so we don't need to write raw SQL. And uh, here you are going against the grain, but that's awesome to hear. Like. I guess what, when you get to a certain background level of just Postgres knowledge or SQL knowledge, that's how you think, right? Like, it's hard to go the other way? Like, Active Record first?
1: I think so. For me, I've just worked on so many slow, bad um, Rails apps because people threw a bunch of stuff in, in this active Record query. They didn't really think about, you know, as long as they got the right data back, that's all they cared about. But they didn't care how they got there. And that's always troubled me. So I'm generally, I do put performance on the front end, which I know some people say don't do until you really need to scale, but it's helped keep my cost down.
0: Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to writing these queries, by the way, you know, you write them raw SQL first and then into active Record. Do you have any queries in your code base right now where you weren't able to port something over to active Record just because, you know, the DSL isn't
1: there? I have not actually. Um, everything ended up being able to be converted at some level.
0: Very nice. And by the way, on the topic of Rails here, do you want to maybe go over some gems that you have in your gem file that really helped you build this app?
1: Yeah, for sure. I use um, so because it is a separate front end from the back end, I'm using Devise with Devise JWT. It's a obviously a JWT library built on Devise, and that enables me to. Um, keep that separate. And then I do have a front-end server for Sapper, which keeps track of the session. And that kind of allows me to um, store that JWT without exposing it to the users. Of course, Rails, Postgres, I'm on Puma. Uh, I'm using JSON API Serializer. So this was originally known as Fast JSON API, and it was out of Netflix, and they kind of abandoned the library, I'm not really sure, but the community was large enough that they forked their own so that's what i'm doing for all my serialization um, i do monitor things via new relic i use feed jira http party and eng tagger um, all of those to help import and ex- the eng tagging is especially necessary for my algorithms to help extrapolate out the people's names I use Rack Cores, of course, um, Foreman, Rack Attack to make sure I'm not getting spammed. And I don't think I have too many other really interesting gems. Everything else is pretty standard. so.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of familiar names in there because I'm also a Rails developer on the side a bit. But curious, uh, do you happen to use Sidekick also or no?
1: Oh, yes, for sure. And Redis.
0: Cool. And then what about possible new front end features, like, I guess not since you're using an API backend, like you're not using anything with like hot wire and turbo and stuff, right? No, I'm not. Okay. That's a great roundabout of uh, the gems that you have there. Do you want to maybe get into some interesting problems that you had to solve while extracting those names out when you were crawling the sites to find who to add to your site?
1: Yeah. So the general gist of how it's set up is I have a, a given source, and so I wrote source rather than podcast because the, uh, the long-term goal and idea is there's a ton of YouTube channels that have great content as well. And I'm sure there's other places around the internet th- that I want to extract from. I just haven't implemented those yet. Generally, I have some kind of source that has a title and a description. And the problem of course is this extra metadata, like who is being interviewed is not just provided by these APIs, by RSS feed for the podcasts. There's no space that says, hey, this is an interview and here are the people. So I'm using this ENG tagging library and that allows me to extrapolate parts of speech from a given sentence or block of text, um, which is nice because that gets my tagging started to figure out who the people are. And I can throw out verbs and throw out a lot of stuff automatically. And then from there, I basically have, because my corpus of a number of people is large enough now, I can start to extract out who's already, who do I already know, and automatically set them as people within this uh, source podcast. And then part of the issue is, of course, all sorts of just small nuances um, people using abbreviations, people using middle names, some people having. Um, very common last names that are common words. So basically, th- think of any color, and that's generally somebody's last name, you know, gold, you know, white, you know, Betty White, etc. These you can't just throw out any given word. You have to really check. And then, of course, people who go by singular words, um, I often don't catch a lot of times, like Sia or common. Uh, those, you know, these people are. It's kind of hard. You can't just say, hey, the word common is not someone's name. Well, it happens to be someone's name. My algorithm has been built over time to originally extrapolate out hey, here's a couple of words that are progressive and they seem like they could be a name. So I do have a list of stop words as well that I throw out in addition to checking existing names. And then this all gets put into a queue and I have a, a moderator dashboard in Listen addict that I just double check once a day. And I want to say that my algorithm is about uh, 93% accurate. Um, so I do have some false positives in there now and then. I don't get a lot of false negatives, which is good. So...
0: Nice. Yeah, I was just about to ask you, like, what's the hit rate on that? But 93% is really good.
1: It, yeah, sure. I, wanted to, I wanted to get to 98, but I don't think I'll ever get there. Uh, that being said, I having built out this moderator dashboard for myself, um, having learned Sapper it's felt it's got a lot of good shortcut keys and stuff. So it takes me just a couple of minutes to mass verify a bunch of new people it's built in such a way that if I wanted to, I could probably go ahead with mechanical Turk or some other service and just pay somebody a couple bucks every day to verify the people that are there.
0: Right. If you had to guess here, like how many new entries do you get per day?
1: Um, new people, it's about 10 a day, uh, with my given source list, unless I import new sources.
0: Okay. And then what about new content for each of those people?
1: Um, that is just so varied. Um, I'd have to look at some growth stats of how many talks I have as it goes over time. I could bring that up for later, but I don't have it up right now.
0: Yeah, not super important right now. And by the way, speaking about the Rails backend here, is this all just one monolithic app for the Rails app?
1: Yeah, the Rails API is one monolithic app.
0: Okay, if you had to like estimate off the top of your head, like how many API endpoints do you think you have?
1: So. So I have an admin dashboard for myself, and then I have a moderator dashboard too. And I built API endpoints for all of those in addition to the public facing ones. So I guess, do you want the answer to all, to the moderator ones, or do you want to just the public facing ones?
0: Yeah, we can just go with all of them for now.
1: It's probably about 100 then.
0: Okay. Well, that's a lot in a good way.
1: Yeah. I, a lot of it deals with specific, you know, CRUD based endpoints for some back end models that most people will never need to know about or see.
0: Right. And by the way, that moderator dashboard that you've built on the back end, the private one, did you find yourself spending a lot of time building that versus, uh, you know, building features that your users would see? Like, how did you find a good balance between that?
1: So I, I built the admin dashboard first and extracted out the moderator dashboard from that. So that technically didn't take a lot of time. I built the, ad, the admin dashboard did take a fair amount of time. I would probably say maybe it was probably a good twenty percent of my backend or like actual time developing.
0: Right. Yeah, it's always a tricky balance, right? Between should I improve the admin backend or should I improve the main site? I always find myself struggling with that.
1: I, I struggle with that a lot, and I struggle with, of course, just you know, algorithmic improvements. You know, where does that lie? Because that, you know, yes, I'm at a point now where it only takes me a couple minutes to moderate things, but I would love to find an import another hundred podcasts as sources and have it be done quickly, that takes a lot more time as adding new sources because every time I add a new source, there's generally a new corpus around some, you know, stop words that I need to add that I've never thought of or something it just doesn't pick up.
0: Right. And when it comes to the number of sources that you have, do you have that number handy?
1: Uh, yeah, i looked it up uh, exactly. It's 92 or 90, 90, 94, excuse me
0: getting really close to that 100 point. Yeah. So what does that involve though to bring in a new source? Are you like manually going out there and discovering these sites? Or do you have like some way to get notified if new ones pop up?
1: So I've had, a, a fee- I think my Twitter followership for ListenAddict specifically is like three. I've had a random guy who was like ping me. He's like, hey, you need to add these sources. And um, so I've had that kind of contact. I've had a couple people email me randomly and be like, hey, will you add this? Of course you know I'm like, oh I don't know where these people are hearing from me. I just kind of post randomly. I haven't done a ton of marketing. Um, and then generally it's me finding out or doing a little research of like what is the best podca- you know what is the best podcast interview list you know and I just go through and kind of look at each podcast RSS feed and see would this be a good fit I also have about a, a good 50 probably in my queue that I just need to get to and I haven't gotten to. The, the issue that I found with a lot of them, um, and this is a, a big struggle with my algorithm and struggle with I don't know how to proceed with, is I will get some podcasts that may have, an, be an interview-based podcast. The one that was recommended on Twitter, one of the two that the guy mentioned was a great one. It had 300 talks or so that are all interviews, uh, but none of the names of the interviewees or the title, they were all in the description and they were commonly mixed with other people's names who weren't in the interview. So it might be, you know, today we talked to James Brown about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so that's really a hard problem to solve because I don't know who is the interviewee in that instance.
0: Yeah, that seems like it would be very tricky. Now this algorithm that you've built up over the last uh, almost a year at this point, I guess it's now May, 2021, how much time do you go in there and tweak that code versus like developing other features at this point?
1: Any t- like I said, anytime I add a new source, I'll at least add the stop words, and then, yeah, depending on how many interviews it has, I may pick up a couple new words every time. Um, any given day that I get the ten new ones with that ninety-three uh, percent, that other seven percent is generally generally due to a stop word that I just hadn't thought of. Uh, or something that may be a proper noun, but it's like a business name. So I just need to, and it, and it adds that, appends that business name or prepends it to somebody's name, which is generally some things that it's like, oh, I didn't catch that. So I'll do that uh, a couple times a week. But that that's just adding the stop words in terms of keeping keeping the overall arching algorithm changes. It's mostly set in stone. I there's some longer term big picture of things I want to change on it that I need to take the time to, to really refactor and do, but it hasn't been a priority. Like you said, you know, front end stuff for the users and a few other moderator things that I'd like to add before I can or should pass it off to Mechanical Turk have kind of been more priority.
0: Right. And for like figuring out those stop words and breaking up just, you know, chunks of text, do you use like in a specific NLP library or do you happen to even use like Postgres full text search to help with it, with this or no?
1: Um, so right now I'm just using the ENG tagging library.
0: Okay, so that is like in place of an NLP library because I haven't used that one firsthand.
1: Yeah, it, it's kind of an older one, so I've I took it and I like slightly tweaked it, but it it's, it's generally does the job of splitting out uh, adjectives, verbs, you know, parts of speech. So I, I do I use that as the main thing. Uh, some of the NLP libraries, the better ones, that I kind of wanted to use or looked into, I think were either Python or Java, and I didn't really want to take the time to build out a separate service, um, to call into those. So for the, and this, for this, you know, kind of simple app, I didn't really need to do that, but I, I could, I could post out my NLP book from school, but that would be another thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Bigger fish to fry maybe. Cause that sounds like a, it would be a lot of low level work to recreate all of that from scratch. Now, okay, so this Rails app, uh, it is a monolithic app sitting in its own code repo, but when it comes to the front end, is that also in the same repo or do you have that broken up?
1: That's broken up into its own app.
0: Okay, do you want to first get into maybe the reasons why you chose to create an API backend versus going with just, you know, ERB templates or whatever?
1: Yeah, so like I mentioned before, I, I wanted to learn Svelte was just priority number one. And it Svelte proper, you could definitely just, you know, add it to an individual ERB template and kind of spruce things up here and there if I wanted to. But I kind of wanted to go all in and see what it was like because my my day job is just a monolithic Rails app and front-end to back-end, and it has Angular on the front-end beyond that. But um, so I I wanted to uh, try to, to do it this separated way and I didn't want to get into, hey, this is a microservices, You know, I got to split this out into 10 different small APIs and here's my auth service and here's my talk service and whatever um, search service. I just wanted a monolith and then how does that work using, you know, JWTs to have this front end. I also have played with and made a couple of Flutter apps. So my longer term intention is to build a mobile app that uses the same Rails backend, of course, but then it's also its own third separate repo.
0: Okay. And by the way, just for me and listeners out there, do you want to give us a, the TLDR on what Svelte actually is? Because I know very little about it. I know it's something for like building UIs or something like that, but that's basically all I know.
1: Okay. So the super short version, and I hope I don't uh, ruin this for people, is that Svelte, it's, it's a front-end framework. So kind of think, like I said, Re- React or Vue or Angular, something like that. But the main difference is it's compiled. And so there's no virtual DOM. Uh, it's so basically it takes your JavaScript and it compiles it into a built product to make sure that your ultimate end result that you've deployed is tiny, like super tiny and and, and fast.
0: Okay. So when it comes to writing this JavaScript, I guess, ultimately in the end, is this similar to like how Alpine works? Where you kind of just mostly writing it in line with your HTML or do you have it broken out into different files?
1: So it's it's the singular file, it will be like a Svelte file. And it's, you have three sections. You have your script section, you have your HTML, and it has its own templating language. And then you have your styles. And so it'll automatically inline styles for you if you need it and want it to and it'll go ahead and uh, do tree shaking and all that kind of stuff to like chunk down to the smallest deliverable for the end user.
0: Okay, so I guess you're describing something almost like a component, right? Like I'm also not super into React, but those three things together would combine into making some type of like UI element, right?
1: Yeah, so each felt file would be a component um, that being said, it could be an entire page that has a bunch of components within it. So you could import each component, just like you would a um, partial in Rails, for instance.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. And then do you want to give us uh, the rundown on what Sapper is and how it builds on top of Svelte?
1: Yeah, so Sapper was the original, I'll say, Svelte framework. Um, so that's it provides routing built in, and it, it provides... Um, full page views and server side rendering as well I do have my own Heroku instance for Sapper the team has since moved on from Sapper they just launched the beta of Svelkit as a replacement for Sapper and I haven't migrated ListenAddict over yet I'm going to wait till it's 1.0 but I have other products that I'm using that are all SvelteKit does kind of the same thing but slight differences in that it doesn't SvelteKit does not run on a server, it's all serverless, versus Sapper has that express backend. So the nice thing about Sapper is, and it's felt in general, is it's but mainly Sapper is it's made to allow users to do all the things that you could do with JavaScript off. So progressive enhancement, if you want to take it back 15 years, people seem to not do as much anymore. So the nice thing is, and I, I didn't do it for every element and everything within Listen Addict, but it was very easy for me to build tooling and things so that my site still works with out JavaScript. But if you have JavaScript on, it Sapper makes the front end become an SPA. So oh. everything is an SPA on the front end. But if you turn off, you know, turn off. JavaScript. It all still works just like it would without being an SVA doll. It doesn't even think like the JavaScript just disappears. So Sapper helps provide those capabilities.
0: That is very neat. So what does that translate to in terms of how you write your code? Like does your Svelte code, like if you're making like a, like, you know, an Ajax request or making a fetch request to the Rails backend, do you hit the Rails backend directly or do you go through Sapper first and then Sapper hits the backend for Rails?
1: So in this instance, you can do either. I'm actually doing both. I'm doing the hitting the sapper endpoint, which hits the Rails API endpoint when JavaScript is off. Otherwise, I'm going directly from, rail, uh, from the front end to the back end and not going through that middle layer. The main issue with that, of course, is if you wanted to build out um, something you know, singular, now I've, I have all these extra API endpoints that I don't necessarily need.
0: <laughs> right. It is kind of a neat architecture, though, because now it's like your front end is totally, totally separate from the Rails backend. It's like you have your own intermediary API in between, sort of.
1: Yeah. And, and it seems to me, anyway, to work really well.
0: <laughs> right. And when it comes to managing um, assets with Sapper, do you happen to still use like something like Webpack to bundle up your CSS and maybe the JavaScript that Svelte produces in the end, if it even does that. Yeah,
1: so, and I'll kind of jump back and forth a little bit here with Sapper and SvelteKit just because that transition is coming and it's something I'm working on currently. Um, So Sapper does use Webpack or Rollup. It's one of the two, just depending on what you choose. I chose to use Webpack because that's what I knew, so it's easy for me to get into. Uh, SvelteKit has switched to ESBuild, which is the most amazing thing ever. Um, And, well, Veet, and Veet is built on ESBuild. Um, And then that uses, I believe, Rollup for production, though.
0: Okay. Yeah, some of that stuff I'm not 100% on, but I know there's a big movement now to go through, what are are those called, like ESM modules or whatever? Like basically Snowpack and Trends? That's that's
1: exactly right. Veet, Snowpack, um, so they're using ESBuild, and ESBuild is with ESM modules and... The difference being between that and Rollup and Webpack is of course those are built in JavaScript, but ES build is built in Go and it's an order of magnitude faster. So when I save something on Listen Addict and I work on the front end, it might take a few seconds for it to pick that change up um, when I refresh. Um, when I'm uh, working on the newer stuff, it happens instanti- instantaneously. It's less than 50 milliseconds.
0: Nice. Yeah. Come to think of it, I do remember ES build. they had a chart where it was like the Webpack version took like 72 seconds and the ES build one was like two seconds. Like, you know, it was some crazy difference.
1: Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to converting Listen Addict, but their API is changing too fast on SvelteKit for me to even take any time to start it yet.
0: Right. So by the way, like how many lines of code do you think you have on the front end versus the back end, just roughly?
1: So I have 310 files about on the back end. Uh, and it's, 11,600 lines, uh, between, uh, Ruby files and, or yeah, Ruby and ERB, uh, the only ERB I do have on the back end is all of my e- emails still go out through the rails API. And then on the front end, I have, uh, 1100 lines of Svelte and then another 4,000 lines of uh, JavaScript, and that's about 240 files between the two.
0: Okay. And does that include test two as well for both of them? So I don't have
1: any front-end tests, because I didn't take the time to do it, and I probably should. um, But that does include tests on the back-end, yes.
0: Yeah, front-end tests is always hard, right, end-to-end, because there's so many little variations of like, well, there's Chrome and Firefox and like 10 different versions of everything.
1: Yeah, and to be perfectly honest, I'm just not great at front-end tests. (laughs) Uh, especially when I'm changing UI things around and I'm still trying to figure out what is the best anyway and I'm not really pleased with this and I move that button over and then I, I rename something and then suddenly my tests are all breaking. And...
0: Yeah, it's even a little painful for backend tests too. Like if you're you know, doing like a controller test, looking to make sure, I don't know, like you have some alert with a specific sentence in it. Like even that, it's like you change that sentence around suddenly like your tests start to break.
1: So this is something that I, I kind of lean on, which is, I. I prefer not 100% tests. Um, I do have pretty solid code coverage for everything that I feel like is business essential. And so those kinds of things I generally don't test. If it says, you know, say successfully and I changed it to saved 100%, I don't test for that. So right. I, those are the kinds of tests that I'm like, I, it's not important to me. It's it's nice to know that it's there. Period, and I maybe that is something I should test for sometimes. But in general, like certain messaging, and uh, I don't test for, it, but I make sure, hey, this idea is set, and this title has been updated, and this you know description has been updated.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe for the alert one, it's like, well, just make sure the alerts are there. Who cares what it says? Just you know, if it's there, it's probably right.
1: Yeah. By
0: the way, speaking of like core functionality, uh, I didn't really go over your site too much before the show, but do you have a uh pricing set up? Like, is there payments on the back end or no?
1: So I I know there's not. And it's a free service at the moment, and I don't have ads. So it's just me paying for it. Uh, We can go into that first, and then I can talk about more about pricing if you want.
0: Sure. I think before we get there, though, just one thing, by the way, when it comes to hosting all of these episodes that people are involved with, are you just linking to other platforms where that show is, or do you actually pull in uh, the media resource, whether it's like, you know, an MP3 or a video file?
1: So I'm not uploading the MP3. I'm not downloading and then re-uploading the MP3s to like my own S3 bucket right now. Um, I'm just linking to these, what, whatever the source from the RSS file has said it is.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: I, I, th- I thought about doing it and I chose not to do it. And I don't necessarily regret it because my S3 costs are negligible. That being said, you know, one of the earlier podcasts I had in my system was Joe Rogan, and he had a nice public RSS feed. Well, the nice thing was I already had this downloaded and cached to my database. Um, if you look at his RSS feed now, it's not—it doesn't exist basically. He got rid of it all, and that's because he went to Spotify exclusive. And so, it's a shame because I can't host those files. But then again, I'm sure if I hosted them, I might get notified by Spotify or something it said you can't. But it, it's one—it's kind of a shame because. In my platform now, you can go to the Joe Rogan podcast that I, episodes that I have, um, but now I, I'm just linking to Spotify um, rather than having an in-place player because on all the episodes, on everything, you can listen to it on my site, and it's streaming from these other servers. But for those particular episodes, because he's Spotify only, uh, I can't do that. So I have to link.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a tricky balance because I think there are even a lot of podcast platforms out there where they don't even locally copy your MP3s from your site. They just pull it in directly from you, kind of. I know Spotify is different. They pull it in and have their own copy, but a lot of other ones, I think they just take it straight from you. So not having a full copy maybe isn't bad, but I could see that also being probably a, huh, a fun problem to have in terms of cost, right? Like what happens when you have 40,000 MP3s that you need to pay for to host?
1: Yeah, and and then, of course, that traffic too. So,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably the big one. Storage MS3 is not too bad. So you mentioned uh, before you are using Sidekick. Do you want to go over some stuff that you might be running through background jobs besides things like, you know, transactional emails?
1: So transactional emails, as you mentioned, uh, 100%. And then the only real thing is uh, a couple times a day, I will ping all of my RSS feeds from the podcasts and then check if they have new ones and then process those if necessary.
0: Nice. So does that end up being a fairly like CPU intensive task? Like, do you notice the load going up for a couple of minutes when it needs to run through all of them?
1: Yes, for sure.
0: Okay, because you did mention you were in Her- Heroku there. Do you just continue to run the same number of dynos throughout the day then, even while that's happening?
1: Yeah, it, because it's on the worker instance, uh, it, it's never enough to make the worker instance so much that I can't, um, it can't keep up.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to get into that in terms of like your Heroku setup. But I'm kind of curious, what does this all look like for you in development? So do you have everything running in Docker or do you just have it all like set up straight on your dev box?
1: It's just on my dev box. I thought about taking the time to Dockerize it and I knew I was already gonna do go to Heroku, which I know supports Docker nowadays, but knowing that I was just gonna deploy it there, I just went the easy route and uh, threw up as fast as possible.
0: Right, do you have any tools to help you spin up all the services that you need to, I guess, run for your app to be accessible in dev Because it's like you have the Rails API backend, then there's the Sapper service, then you have the Sidekick worker, and then maybe there's something else, you know, besides Postgres and Redis, or is that all of it? It's just those three. Right. Do you just like run those separately in a terminal or do you use some tool to like multiplex that?
1: No, I, I run them separately in a terminal. I... Had just done a, a slight, you know, shell script to run them all simultaneously for a little while, and but I ended up ditching that after a couple months because it was just easier when I'm debugging or looking at things to keep them separate.
0: Right. And by the way, uh, for those transactional emails, which service do you use? I use Mailgun. Okay. Did you go through like weighing pros and cons and picking that one? Uh, after reviewing stuff, or you just had the experience with that?
1: Uh, every other app I've done was SendGrid previously. And so for me, it was an easy choice between the two. I was having some issues with, you know, I was bringing up, a, I, I constantly am trying new things, and, and I generally use Fortogoo as my go-to for Rails backends to do something quick and free and easy, and then I'll burn it down. And for whatever reason, SendGrid like, flagged my email as spam, so I couldn't send emails <laughs> through SendGrid. And I, I, I have contacts at SendGrid. Um, I'm a Techstars alum from previous, so it was pretty easy to get any contact, but it just kind of like burned me a little bit. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to try something new and went with Mailgun, and it's been fantastic. So that's what I went with.
0: Nice. So at this point, like, one year of basic, well, not quite a year of running in production, but, you know, of all those emails that got sent out, do you think the delivery rate is is pretty good now? And not being market spam?
1: Uh, but the mailgun stuff has been great. Yeah. Everyone who signs up is like, they have to verify that they have it. And then I give them options to opt out, of course, of the emails. So which I think is required by GDPR now. So
0: Right. Oh yeah. That's something to bring up too. Not the GDPR stuff, but in terms of like email notifications. So do you send folks an email out every single time a new episode of someone they subscribe to comes out?
1: Yeah, I'll send those out daily. And the way I have it set up, I believe, and I haven't looked at this in a while, so I can't speak to it 100% accurately, is I believe I only send them one email total. So even if they get like three new people notified for that day, I'll send them one email versus sending them three separate emails
0: right yeah that's a good idea because you never know if someone subscribed to 15 people and before they know what they're getting like 40 emails a day yeah so do you want to circle back now you were mentioning it before about um what you might do in the future in terms of pricing
1: oh yeah so uh, it's free service right now I, you know i'm not a huge fan of ads i don't i'm also not of the hey at all all ads are evil kind of thought but at the same time i'm like it's My total costs at Heroku right now and S3 and Mailgun is about $30 a month, so it's pretty negligible, and it more than covers all of my server costs um, at the scale that I'm at right now. So I'm fine to just kind of eat that $30. I could throw ads on here, but I don't really like... The reason I don't like ads is, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm kind of like a performance freak and that I just really want my stuff to be as fast as possible and so I just don't like the idea of slowing down the user's experience because some ad is loading and somehow blocking javascript somewhere blocking some kind of area so I have thought about doing that in the meantime the other option that I've thought about for monetization strategy would be adding affiliate links if you're say looking up Arnold Schwarzenegger again to bring him up and rather than just showing all of his talks maybe at the bottom or a sidebar or something I'll show some movies or books that he's been on with you know affiliate links to Amazon or something along those lines i've thought about doing the ads eventually anyway but then adding stripe and having a subscription so that you can just go ahead and not see ads as a way to avoid those and i've also thought about you know just having regular donation links you know patreon or buy me a coffee, etc.
0: Right? Yeah, sounds like uh, you've thought about this quite a bit. Now it just becomes, well, which like trigger do I pull, if any?
1: Yeah, and, and I've done another interview uh, with a guy who, who used to work with VCs and venture capital, and and he said what I really need to do is, you know, get this around all of the high level Fortune 500, 5,000 business leaders, and make sure that they're all in here. And make sure that, because people don't do book tours nowadays, they do podcast tours. And so, you know, he said, it's sell my, sell this service directly to investors who want to know and hear what these business, you know, CEOs are saying as fast as possible. And I thought that was kind of an interesting idea, though. I just don't have the connections to really know about (laughs) where to send that kind of information. Be like, oh yeah, you really, really need to know about. Holon Musk's latest yada yada, check it out.
0: (laughs) So in the meantime, kind of just roll with the bills and go as as necessary or as planned for now. Yeah, for now. So that 30 bucks a month, do you want to break us down what type of dynos you're running on Heroku as well as maybe other add-ons you might be using?
1: Yeah, so because I'm such a small scale, like I said, 4,200 uniques in the last 30 days isn't a boatload. So what I have for resources right now is I actually am just on the uh, lowest level paid hobby, uh know, for both the worker and the web. And that gets, I mean, I could pay for a standard, but it just, I don't have the traffic numbers to justify it yet. And even the 700,000 plus requests for the last three days doesn't add up enough to justify it for all, you know, everything. So I have, one of each of those for web and worker, and then on the front end I have another um, web uh, at that same level, and then right.
0: so that's for Sapper,
1: and then yeah for Sapper, and then I have the uh, the basic Postgres uh, level that is paid, the first one of those, and that's really it in terms of paid stuff. I have a, a few other add-ons on Heroku that I use. I'm just not paying for any of them right now. Um, honey badger, which is probably one of my favorite, um, log entries, also one of my favorite new relic, which I use New Relic at work and the paid version is just so much better. I have the free version on my app, which is fine, but the paid one is really nice. And I kind of miss some of those capabilities, but I'm not willing, I don't need to pay for that yet. Like I said, I'm not at scale enough to justify it. And then, uh, uh, Redis cloud.
0: Okay. Do you happen to know what the limitation is for Redis free tier? Like in terms of, what is it? Concurrency, I guess, is their main one?
1: 30 megabytes is part of it. Um, And let me see what else it says. Trying to look. I mean, I'm not using a lot. I'm not, (laughs) for someone who loves performance so much, I'm not caching as much, nearly as much as I should be.
0: Right. Do you want to give an example of like what you might be caching or are caching?
1: I cache a few of the like main pages, you know, the front end page only changes once a day, um, stuff like that. Um, but I should probably be caching a lot more, you know, database queries on the query level. You know, when people are doing searches, I get weird obscure searches, and I'm like, oh, I'm really surprised someone would type that in, but <laughs> they did, and I should probably cache that.
0: So when it comes for caching, you know, some of those pages. Do you use a specific gem for that or are you just using just the constructs built in by Rails?
1: The built-in Rails stuff.
0: Okay. And by the way, those search terms that people are searching and they're not like finding stuff, do you ever use that kind of as like a way for you to maybe add some new stuff because it's like, oh, they're looking for this, but I don't have that?
1: Yes and no, um, because I you know and, and some of these maybe bots, I don't know because some of them are just really random and then some are like, names that I've never heard of, but then I go and Google and it's like, oh, this person was on a podcast recently. So those that, those are the ones that I definitely go back and look up.
0: Right. Those people are probably uh, just searching for their own name. If it's just like they've done one or two shows.
1: Could be. Oh, Just kind of meta is I was on Svelte Radio um, back in February and they pu- published the episode like a month ago or so. And so I finally got to be on my own platform about my platform. So that was nice.
0: That's pretty fun. So going back to what you said before about, you know, you really like to optimize for performance, does that also mean that you might not be using any type of like Google analytics type of stuff because you just don't want those little snippets of JavaScript slowing your site down?
1: I do have Google analytics on here, but it is behind a tiny, you know, cookie banner. Um, so my, my analytics traffic, which is, is like very small. It's very interesting how many people either ignore that, and I have it off by default, of course. And so it doesn't even get loaded unless people accept it. And uh, it's, it's amazing to me to see the difference in like, if I'm looking at Heroku or Cloudflare um, numbers versus analytics numbers.
0: Right, how big of a difference are we talking here?
1: Oh uh, It's like uh, easily 50 to 100x.
0: Oh wow, yeah, it's a big difference. So. You mentioned Cloudflare, then. Do you have that sitting in front of all of this?
1: I do. Yeah. Did you I'm, I'm look a, into? I'm a huge fan, fan.
0: Yeah. What makes you happy to use them? And I'm not like really new on using them. I, I think they're a good service as well. But I'm just curious.
1: Oh, uh, I mean, so my work we use uh, CloudFront with AWS, and it's just a lot nicer UI and provides a lot of really simple options, in my opinion, for. Um, doing all things cache and all things sc- at scale.
0: Right, yeah, isn't there, uh, their analytics are pretty cool because it's like you just get them server side. Yeah, exactly. Definitely is nice. So now do you wanna talk a little bit maybe about what your deployment looks like? Like do you just deploy straight to Heroku from your dev box or do you push this up to GitHub or GitLab or somewhere else first?
1: I'm doing the old push to the staging server. So I have a pipeline set up on Heroku. So I have a staging uh, back end and a staging front end. So I will push to each of those uh, independently, of course, because they're two different apps. And then once I've cleared that, I'll just use the upgrade button within Heroku to upgrade it to production. I've never actually used the um, connect to GitHub uh, capabilities of Heroku, which I should. Um, I'm jumping back to the... Svelkit thing, I'm I'm doing I've moved my front ends over to Versal um for Svelkit. So when I finally get around to upgrading Listen Addict's front end from Sapper to Svelkit, I'll be moving that front end away from Heroku to Versal. And I I use the Git integration there and it works great. And I feel like Heroku's is probably fine too. I just haven't tried it yet.
0: Right. So do you end up just like pushing to two different origins then, or do you just not push your code up to GitHub or somewhere?
1: I just push it up to uh, Heroku's origin.
0: And then for like, before you push it up to that, do you just have a manual workflow of like a checklist of things that you do? Like, do you run RuboCop or do you run your test suite and stuff before you decide to commit and push?
1: Yeah, I always run my test suite beforehand. Um, and then I have RuboCop just set for my NVS code to like always show me things. And then like on save to like annoy me. So I, I generally don't have to run anything manually at that point.
0: Nice. Yeah, there's so many squigglies that get picked up, but it's kind of nice to have them right there in your face to uh, resolve them at the time of they actually appear.
1: Yeah, and anything that can be auto formatted for me, I appreciate too. So on the front end uh, in Svelte and Sapper, I use Prettier to automatically do stuff for me, and I just that's kind of the way I lean. I, I use Rubocop with Airbnb's. Um, rule set, I should say.
0: Right. Yeah, I remember when I was getting into ESLint, it was like, it was very hard to find a very minimal config. And then it's like, okay, just pull an Airbnb set. But then you look at their config, and it's just like a million lines of config.
1: Oh, it is. But that's kind of why I like it, because I feel like they've thoroughly thought things through, and there's nothing in their config that that I so adamantly disagree with that it's just way easier for me to say, okay, let's just use that and... I might tweak one or two things. I don't even remember. But uh, for the most part, I'm just like, okay, this is great. Let's go.
0: Yeah. I have to say, though, for sure, like, I am now a very, very big fan of just having code formatters do all the work. You know, it's like, if a machine can do it and it's like makes me happy 95% of the time, I might as well just like let it do its job and move on with life.
1: Yeah. I'm very jealous of the uh, Go format people. I've tinkered with Go and I haven't done a ton with it, but just having a standard set out by the language creators from onset and saying, hey, this is what everyone should be doing seems a lot nicer to me than everyone coming up with their own standard.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then it's only gets weird that 1% time where it like formats the code in a weird way where it's like, ah, it looks so ugly, but whatever. Everything else is good.
1: Yes, that does happen.
0: Moving on now. So, let's talk a little bit about uh disaster recovery or maybe unexpected events. So, do you have your Postgres database being backed up on Heroku?
1: Yeah, but just on whatever default level it provides at the moment, which I think is daily for my for my level. But I've I haven't done any like test recovery. You, you know, everyone says, "That's great you have backups, but have you ever tried recovering from it?" <laughs> <laughs> um so I, I don't, I haven't ever tried that.
0: Right. I guess uh, you're saving grace there is like, you're kind of using a managed Postgres instance from Heroku. So the odds of that data going away, I guess, are sort of low. It's like something would need to happen, I guess, right? Like some SQL injection or something crazy at the app level. Like you can probably count on their database being around.
1: Yeah. And I mean, yeah, that, I believe that they're going to figure something out. I kind of just have faith in the system, which... Hopefully it won't bite me.
0: Right. Have you ever though, like exported your production database and imported it locally in dev just to have like a, you know, a random sample of production?
1: I've done that before, uh, pretty early on. I haven't done it lately and I probably should because I my like I said, my stop words and some of the, I have a ton of people in my production database that I don't normally have locally. And when I'm oh, talking about the import flow of new podcasts is I'll generally import it locally first and kind of compare and see what see what will be generated and see if I need to like do anything like, oh, I'm not going to import this one directly on live because it's just going to end up with a ton of bad data or very few people. So I generally do it locally first to check how many people I'll get imported. And I generally try to say, hey, if this podcast has at least... A 50% hit rate of new people, then okay, that's good enough, or like 70% 50 to 70%. And then um, so I might get in like that one I mentioned earlier that had multiple names in the description, had like a 30% hit rate, even though it was every episode was an interview-based one. It was just a lot of the ones weren't the actual interviewee. So I should probably download the latest production to get a little better comparison to see what gets automatically picked up from my people that aren't, I don't have locally.
0: Right. When you set up a new person in production, like on the live site, do you have something in your admin backend to toggle that person from being visible or not? Almost like published.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a verified and it's, it's in the admin as well as the moderator dashboard.
0: That's cool. So do you have any like other feature flags that you might be using? Or if you are like, which gem do you, or do you do for that?
1: I don't. Um, I have a features, uh, table that I kind of enable for myself. Um, but I don't do enough changes and I kind of move too fast, uh, you know, being a one man person and there's nothing I feel like about this app where I'm paying, you know, getting paid or having users pay me in such a way that I'm like, okay, I need to slow roll this out and see if it works. Um, on the flip side of that, there were a couple of gems I was investigating and I don't remember them offhand to do more A-B testing. And that's a little something more I'd be interested in. Um, my main issue with that is integrating that into the Svelte front end is something I haven't done before. But we've I've done a fair amount of A-B testing in the past, and I do think that that's probably something I should do.
0: Right. Do you want to give an example of what you might decide to A-B test if you were to implement that?
1: Yeah, so I was thinking like, um, In terms of what is the default sort order for certain, you know, for the people or for the talks or, you know, should I, when you're on a person's page, you know, how do I, or a talk page, do I want to display things on this side of the site? And I'd probably want to implement some kind of heat map to see how many people are actually clicking through to play an episode or like clicking away right away. Um, one of the big ones that I want to do, and I, I probably should just do anyway, is, um, there's a lot of, there's a ton of places now to listen to podcasts, you know, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, you name it, there's a million now. And there's probably a good, at least 10 that have a lot of high traffic. And I should probably provide the links to those at least on my talk pages so that people don't have to listen on my page. Um, Maybe they're just found it through my site, but then at least give them the ability to quickly get to the app that they want to be on rather than trying to force them to stay around on mine.
0: Right. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Because even on this podcast, running in production.com, it's like I have my own audio player there, but I also have, you know, six or seven buttons on top where folks can go and listen to it on, you know, Overcast or iTunes or Spotify or wherever.
1: Exactly. And I think that I should probably, that's that's something I would want to A-B test is like are people using these and clicking away and is it okay versus sticking around?
0: Right. So by the way, on the topic of like disasters, though, we didn't really get a chance to talk about uh, monitoring or a system, you know, just ensuring that the site is up. Do you have any external sites hitting your site on, you know, a regular interval, maybe every five minutes? And it kind of just reports to you through email if it happens to be down?
1: I had used Pingdom in the past and I don't. I, I just, the main thing I use now is log entries notifies me. If anything is down. So I kind of rely on log entries to be, to let me know that things are just going bad. And then of course, honey, honey badger didn't get notified of individual bugs. Um, that's the other thing is I've had one bug in the last 14 days and it was just an app crash that was due to Heroku's own fault. If you would like their status Heroku status on Twitter, you could see this thing came up. So I try to make sure that the code is relatively bug-free. So if something goes down, it's generally out of my hands. I haven't had any issues with, you know, anything. So it's, oh, the Redis cloud went down or Heroku went down or that's really it. You know, AWS is down, so everyone is down.
0: Yeah, hopefully uh, S3 will remain up because if that goes down, we're all in trouble.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, besides, you know, errors related to... You- Heroku or something like that, do you happen to recall the last time you got notified through some bug in your app and like, what was it?
1: Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't recall anything. (laughs) Um, I, I, it might've been something with search. Actually, it was something with search somebody was searching some weird, uh, Unicode or UTF-8 something that my app was not converting properly. And I don't, I don't recall if that was a rails bug. Um or if it was something within my app, but I ended up just modifying, I believe I ended up it's something like Russian character, I believe. Um I ended up modifying it to either reject those or do something else to just kind of like this is not important to me.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Always uh need to be careful with those Russians, right? (laughs)
1: Well or or just those UTF 8s and Unicodes. I'm just
0: (laughs) And for listeners out there, I'm just joking, just joking. No, okay.
1: I, I, there's a lot of really good smart motions that, uh, yeah.
0: So, by the way, I mean, before we sort of wrap this up, you know, you mentioned earlier in the show that you are pretty hardcore into Postgres. And I'm curious, do you happen to use that one add-on for Heroku? I think it's called, like, PG Extras, where it kind of gives you hints about your database, like where you may have performance issues, like, you know, index hit rates and other stuff like that. Uh, yeah,
1: I've, I've used PG Experts or Extras, or, um, I don't use it often enough to look and say, Hey, this is the indices that I should be having, um, et cetera, though. I generally end up doing it myself manually. I'll jump into, uh, I use PG admin and then I'll just go directly into the database and I'll kind of write my own queries to check that kind of stuff.
0: Right. Do you want to go maybe into some examples of where folks might get themselves in trouble when it comes to, you know, either writing queries or forgetting to do certain indexes? Like, are there some like common pitfalls that people might uh, or should be aware of? Like things that you've just discovered over the years?
1: Yeah, just a couple of really simple ones is, you know, in an an app like this, right? You're in my search bar and I write up um, James. And in my query, I'm going to find people whose name's James, but then also titles of shows that have the names james in the the title of the show and then any tags as well so something that comes across very commonly that people will do is they'll just do wildcard searches for this kind of query um on either direction bidirectional searches and that can be slow uh, especially in postgres if you have a wildcard in the front and the back and you it cannot index those properly a lot of times so, you know, a very common couple of solutions for that, the best ones are using trigrams and postgres, tr, uh, T, trigram, trgm, I think. And that's like a built-in feature to Postgres to allow these kinds of searches to be faster and indexed, indexed uh, more, you know, faster. Uh, the other one would be TS vectors. is, you know, you're, you're talking about um, built-in, Types of search, so I don't use Elasticsearch or anything equivalent on this app, but I do use TS vectors. So that's another way for it it being Postgres to take, you know, say the title and split it up into a, a bunch of vectors via really smart algorithms that someone wrote for the PG team, and now you it searches against that and it just is a lot faster and incredibly smart things well beyond my personal knowledge level of how do they how do they implement that but those two being a replacement for like wildcard searches is generally a, a first go to like hey i noticed this query is taking 400 milliseconds or 200 milliseconds you can generally drop that down to like 20 milliseconds
0: right yeah i still remember there was a blog post something like Postgres full text search is good enough, and it was from like I don't know like eight years ago, and like even today, like it's still good enough, if not better than that than back then. It's like yeah, I find myself using it all the time, and that's what like that relates to using those t s vectors
1: Those are probably the two quickest gotcha downfalls that I, I commonly see with general apps and then with rails apps, because rails by default you know does select like star, you know if you have a super super wide table. And you only really need three attributes, I see that a lot of times. Not in, of course my app because I'm no I'm just selecting those three columns, but in general, I see that often. People will just do an includes and load three different tables in and select everything from all three tables or you know, everything that's within the includes and it just ends up being a lot more data than they need.
0: Right. So of all the tables that you have, like what is your widest table?
1: Um don't well, know offhand.
0: <laughs> cause that's always a fun discussion too. It's cause I don't want to get too deep into it for time here, but it's like, when do you normalize versus denormalize?
1: It's probably the talk table, uh, which represents an individual show. Um, and it's not that wide. It's like 22 columns.
0: Okay. Did you find yourself like mentally going through that to think like, well, you know, maybe these five columns should be in its own table and I'll just you know, make a foreign key reference to that? Or like what goes through your mind to determine if you should do that or put it all into one table?
1: So for me, in this instance, so specifically to the talk, so I have four columns for URL representations of this talk. I have a description URL, talk, text URL, audio URL, and a video URL. Well, I know for a matter of fact that Audio and video URLs for sure, and maybe the other three or other two could and should be another table. Um, For example, if I have, we'll go back to Joe Rogan. He has his podcast. Here's the audio URL, but he might on his YouTube put up two or three clips to the video URL, and that might just be part of that interview. And I might want to put all of those on my in my system. Well, right now I can't. So that's the trade-off I have right now is it's a singular link with the singular source of that audio or video rather than hey I know this person might have put several clips up. And I did that for expediency's sake, you know, I was under the original like build that hey, I just want this out as quick as possible and I don't necessarily want to have another relationship here that I need to load in all of these URLs when I can just throw the one main one here. Now, let's say if I got to a, a point of scale where I, I was importing all of these additional sources, such as, like I said, the YouTube, Jim, uh, Joe Rogan, with all of these other clips from a particular episode, then I might revisit it at that point and denormalize it, or I might just use a string array inside of you know the built-in Postgres string, string array and just have a string array column.
0: Yeah. I always find like I am not super hardcore into database stuff, but like I find myself thinking about those things all the time because it's like, well, you know, if I use the string array, that's cool and, and it's going to be fast and easy to work with. But then it's like, well, what if I want to know like when I actually added that specific one? I I don't have that context of like created at.
1: Yeah, and I I get into the issue with this with like Mongo and document stores in general is I, I've used JSON blobs within tables in Postgres. And they are good for that. Hey, quick. Okay, now I don't have a string array. Yet. I have this new JSON blob array of text URLs, but I've added created at as as part of the JSON blob. So I, now I know when these were created, but it, and it still is within the talk table. Um, but at that point, to me, if, if you have established the schema, it's generally faster to make queries for these just using an RDS as a traditional RDS rather than, hey, let's throw everything in like a blob.
0: Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, usually for stuff like that, it's like if I'm making like an API call to Stripe or something, I might dump the JSON blob into a JSONB uh, field, but then I'm just using that to have the data, you know, like I don't query it, but then I have actual columns for the things I care about or tend to display.
1: That's exactly what I do or have done in, in other jobs. Cause yeah, if I'm getting an API request and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw my request and the response, just so I have them, and if I need to reprocess that, say there was a, a bug that was thrown in the response, well, at least now I have the response and I can download it locally and rerun it and figure out what the bug was versus I don't have a clue what it is. And I think that's a fantastic use case for those fields.
0: Yeah, for sure. So now let's maybe talk a little bit about uh, your best tips and lessons learned from building this app. I'm very curious to, uh, to see what you have here.
1: So. I built this with the intent to as a COVID project, you know, talk to the family about, you know, taking the time to do it. Figuring out that work life balance <laughs> is probably number one. It, I know it's kind of cliche to talk about, but it's it's hard. It's still hard. Um, I went part time on my full time job in the fall after I launched Listen Addict to start working on some other products as well as continuing to build and pieces of listen addict and even at part-time it's still hard to to keep that balance so and then understanding that it's not when i say work life it's not just familial life and family it's also health and sleep and eating properly it's easy to I, i haven't had burnout on this product and these products because i feel like i've kept a good balance there but in the past i have you know where i'm working you know nights and you know nights and weekends as we mentioned but I will cut off you know, between 9.30 and 10 p.m. So I can get a good night's rest and, and try to cut off early enough that I can read in bed to get my mind off of code uh, and I'm not just sitting in there in my bed coding in my mind. So mm-hmm. I think that that's the biggest one I see a lot of times. Is, you know, People are so gung-ho about their new product and they want to get it out there. And I understand that and I'm the same way, but then they burn themselves out after a couple of months of just tons of late nights and just not taking enough time to keep their health. Uh, and then in terms of like technical things, I, and this is the first product that I've actually had that was a completely 100 separate API from front end. I love it. It's fantastic. Um, if you haven't tried it before, I would recommend trying it. It might not work for, you know, every application or for your application, but if you never tried it before, it's you should try it. I think it's a good way to go for a lot of applications. And um, I'm hoping to work on the Flutter app probably in the fall for Listen Addict. We'll see if that happens or not. But I like knowing that my API is already done and I can just easily uh, make my API calls and they're there. I don't have to go build a new thing for that or separate thing.
0: So with that said then, do you think um, if you were to recreate your app today from scratch, then you'd still make the same design choice of going with the Rails backend as an API backend?
1: I think I would, of course, you know, I, I'm, I've looked at, uh, have you heard of Gin framework for going? Yeah. a little bit. Uh, okay. So I, I've been looking and exploring that a little bit. Um, it's very bare bones, of course, compared to rails, you know, it doesn't have all the cool built in stuff. Um, and this is just me chasing, you know, novelty, of course, Svelte was new and I wanted to learn it. Um, now I know pretty well, and I really, really love it. I don't want to just necessarily replace my backend Rails app, but I think it would be nice to maybe even think about, and I i, I don't I don't subscribe to the everything that needs to be its own microservice level, but it'd be nice to extract out the slowest bits of my Rails app and, you know, rewrite it in Gen um, if I can. I think that'd be kind of cool.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's a very good, like, that's a great example of You can still have your front-end coded the way it is, but then swap out the back-end for whatever you want, like if you happen to use Gin or Rails or whatever.
1: Exactly. I would 100% 100 do the same approach that I did, though. Um, I don't think I would have had, even though it took me quite a few months to get this out, because I was tweaking and doing things that (laughs) are very unnecessary, and I show my wife, and she would just laugh. She's like, is that really MVP? And I'm like, yes. I I don't think, you know, trying to learn a a new back end while simultaneously learning a new front end, you know, would have done me any favors.
0: Yeah, for sure. By the way, have you ever heard that term like innovation tokens before or like use boring tech?
1: I've heard use boring tech, but not innovation tokens.
0: Okay, because they're like sort of related. But in that blog post about the boring tech, they bring up this thing like innovation tokens. And it's like, you know, you have permission to use something new for, you know, whatever application that you're building. But... Like you say, like, you know, trying to learn a, both a brand new backend and frontend might be a little bit difficult, right? So it's like in your case here, maybe you the uh, an innovation token or two to work with Sapper, you know, it's like you just choose one or two new things instead of trying to learn all the new things.
1: That makes sense. I think part of the issue, you know, for me is I, I love learning a ton and I have a YouTube channel where I like to teach programming things. And so I'm always trying to find that new novel thing. But then, of course, balancing that out with and justifying to the family to be like, hey, I want to work on this thing and I, I need to, at some level, you know, bring in not a salary because I have the job right now, but, you know, eventually it would be nice that this pays for itself.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way in that, like, I really do like learning new stuff, but at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, it's a very dangerous topic for me to go down the route of like, oh, that's a new shiny thing because I know, like, I'll just not get obsessed with it, but I'll just continue looking for the new shiny when it's like, but there's like 10 other great things that, you know, just use them.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and especially nowadays, um, I think that a lot of people are constantly chasing the new and it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that some people can and should do it. And then they can come back to the rest of us and say, Hey, this is worth it or not. Um, That's kind of how I felt about Svelte. I I'm, I'm 100% on board now. I, I don't think I want to do React again kind of thing, but it's still like very, you know, small, small, you know, ecosystem comparatively.
0: Right. So before I wrap this up, you know, you mentioned that you do have that YouTube channel. Do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, YouTube channel, anything like that?
1: Yeah, I'm at David W Parker on Twitter and programmingtil.com is my website that has all of my YouTube channel content on it. Um, and then I'll send you the channel as well for show notes, but directly those would be the main things.
0: Well, awesome, David. So thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed being here and, um, I'm really excited. I have not (laughs) imported this podcast yet, which is silly of me. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and import it so that way I can, um, have my second Import on my own site.
0: Nice. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.